The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, where we are joined by a very special guest. Gary Burton is a jazz vibraphonist, composer, performing and recording artist, as well as educator. He retired from music in March of 2017, but is kind enough to spend some time with us. A prolific recording artist, Gary Burton has collaborated with many greats in jazz, from Chick Corea, Pat Metheny, the late Stefan Grappelli, Keith Jarrett, and many more. He's also appeared on some singer-songwriters' recordings, including Katie Lang, Bruce Coburn, and the late Tim Harden. He wrote a memoir entitled Learning to Listen, The Jazz Journey of Gary Burton. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, what your questions are going to be. (laughs) I appreciate it. How important has listening been in your life? Well, there's two. I mean, I was sort of trying to get that at that in my autobiography. Uh, as a musician, of course, we we're listening. Our ears are wide open all the time, and particularly if you're an improvising musician. You're influenced by all the things you hear, even if it's not jazz music. You know, you're, you in, the, in your life, you hear unusual things uh, as you travel around the world and so on, and they all can influence you and add to your the breadth of, of your own creativity. But there's also uh, listening to, in a way, your, uh, some people would say your conscience or your inner self and so on, that when you're on a path as an artist, you know, there's things can pull you away from your focus. And one of the challenges of being a young musician, I mean, I started my career when I was 17 on up, you know, through your entire career, it's a challenge to uh, stay true to yourself and true to your ideals and keep going in what you will look back on and say, well, I, you know, I stayed on the path. I, you know, I didn't uh, get sidetracked. You were telling me that you have a piano at home and that you're playing for fun. That's true. (laughs) That's true. I stopped performing two years ago for uh, medical reasons and I was a piano major in college and played at home as a kid. Uh, it's very similar to the vibraphone, my main instrument. You know, the keyboard is the same. It's a, instead of using its mallets and sticks to hit it, you push the buttons on the piano keyboard to make the music. So although I hadn't played much piano over the years, I always owned one. And then I just, so I decided, you know, when I retired, I put my vibraphone into storage and in fact eventually i gave it away to a very talented young vibraphone player from in europe that i now play the piano maybe two or three four times a week for half an hour just with some easy classical pieces or play a standard tune or something that seems to satisfy my desire to still you know be a musician does playing music feel different to you now well definitely just to be a brief explanation, I had a, a major operation, heart operation, about five years ago, and was unconscious, uh, uh, had no heartbeat for half an hour during this thing because it, you know it, it, it was a, an operation that uh, that went wrong, and uh, that was unexpected, and it was a scramble to manage to bring me back with CPR and a, and a breathing machine, but they managed to keep me alive. But I noticed once I recovered after a couple of months and resumed playing that a lot of things had changed. It was suddenly difficult to read music. I couldn't remember things as well. I would get lost in the middle of performing a tune. I no longer had perfect pitch, which is, you know, I had since I was a child, the ability to just recognize the sound of each note and say, oh, that's an A, oh, that's a C, that's an F. Suddenly, I didn't, couldn't do that anymore. It was, that was startling. So I accepted the fact that my circumstances had changed and uh, I started tapering off my schedule and then eventually knew that, you know, after a handful of rather embarrassing moments and major concerts where I would get all confused and lost and scramble and make mistakes and so on, 
that I uh, said, okay, this is, you know, the right time for me to step back because uh, I was r- really proud of the high standards I'd always held for myself. And I realized I could either play much simpler music and only stick with songs that I had played for 25, 30 years already and were pretty deeply ingrained in my memory. But uh, that would, to me, felt like a pretty big compromise. So now music is more fun. I spend a lot of time looking at YouTubes on my computer of classical performance. I've seen every Glenn Gould YouTube in existence, I'm I'm sure, for instance. (laughs) Well, on that note of classical music, would it be possible for you to pick a favorite classical piece? Well, that would be just recently the one I've been listening to is the most famous piece written for pipe organ, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. I also like almost anything written by Chopin, the piano music uh, in particular, that, that are you know, standard repertoire for classical pianists to play. And uh, when I put uh, music, I don't actually have a CD player in the house. What I do is I turn on the television and go to the classical music station and just sort of let it play at random. And I end up hearing all kinds of uh, pieces, some new to me and some familiar, but it's a nice way to keep, keep it uh, having variety. How did you respond to people when you were telling them that you were going to retire and they tried to argue with you? That surprised me. I thought, I mean, how much did I have to explain? I didn't want to go into gruesome details too much, but you sort of say, I've got a, it's a medical reason that I have to stop. You would think that would, you know, quiet any concerns. But I had a lot of people come up to me and try to argue me out of it, saying, you know, you can do it. You can do it. Don't give up. Don't, you know, we just heard you play. I said, yes, but I'm just playing easy pieces and, and I can't learn any new music and uh, it's going to go downhill from here. It's gradually getting worse. And uh, they didn't want to hear that. They, they, I was, they, I was even told, you know, you owe it to your fans to essentially, I guess, struggle on until you collapse on stage. It just didn't make sense. And of course, not only were people telling me this in person, but people were also writing it in, you know, uh, postings on websites and so on. It's pretty you know, angry stuff. I, that was the last thing I expected. I thought I would get sympathy, maybe, for, for what was going on. But I did discover that it's very unusual for jazz musicians in particular to choose to retire. Almost never happens. People just keep on playing, even if they can hardly play at the level they used to. They don't want to give it up. And of course, some players might be in financial straits and need to keep playing anyway to pay the rent. Uh, but there were others, I, I won't name names, but there were some very famous jazz musicians that continued playing on into their 90s. Well, I'll mention Lionel Hampton, one of my you know, heroes, of course, who played until he was 95 and was finally just unable to play anymore physically. But the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, uh, his playing was a, you know, was a, a mere, you know, ghost of, of what he had been in the peak of his career. And, but nobody tells you, everybody says, isn't that wonderful that he can keep going? You know, nobody steps up to the artist and says, you really should make, consider, you know, uh, stepping back before it, you know, gets any worse. And I really was haunted by that possibility and decided, oh, I, I don't want to do that. And um, a lot of musicians have told me, in fact, that um, it's my actions, my deciding to do it while I'm you know, still somewhat functional, serves as, a, as a, a role model in the future for other musicians who will be facing the same you know, issue. You know, is it time to stop yet or not? Classical musicians seem to do this, you know, whenever it's necessary. I mean, they play very complicated music as well, and they can't just switch to easier and easier pieces. So there comes a time in many classical players' lives where they decide, I should just teach now or uh, take some other role in the music world besides uh, opera singers lose their voices at some age for the most part, and they have to decide what to, when to quit and what to do about it. It's just not common in the jazz world. And you're making your home in Florida these days. What do you like about Florida? 
Well, I'll say the first thing that everybody says, the sunshine, yeah. <laughs> the weather. I mean, it's 80 degrees here today, and it has been for the last month. And it will be, you know, pretty much all year, essentially summer. It gets hotter and humid in the summer. But, um, you know, I lived in, in, in the east and the north for most of my life till I retired from my uh, role at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And I was 61 then. And I decided the top of my list of what I wanted in retirement was to be somewhere warm. So it was sort of a toss up between Florida or California. And I decided I was more of an East Coast person. And I was still at that point touring. And I, I, you know, I played in Europe at least three or four times a year. So flying back and forth to Europe from here was a lot easier than flying from California, which is almost like, you know, making a trip to Japan or something. It's a long trip. So uh, I moved here, didn't know a soul, but quickly made friends and uh, found that there was a really a, a nice art scene here in South Florida in both Miami and Fort Lauderdale and West Palm. You know, nice, beautiful, gorgeous theaters, concert halls, and so on. It's, um, I came at the right time, I could say. So I'm quite happy here. And I guess now everybody wants to visit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this time of year, I do have a fair number of visitors. In fact, my my daughter and her husband and my two grandkids are coming in, in next month for a week during school break, which will be nice. I get try to see them at least a couple of times a year. And I was just in L.A. a few months ago, but then they decided to come and visit in the spring. So um, I do have company coming and going. It's true. Musically speaking, would you say that you were confident early on? Yes, I think I was, and I don't know why. It just came easy to me. Uh, I was a quick learner. I was pretty much self-taught. I had a teacher start me off when I was six and kind of show me how to read the notes on the music and how to hold the sticks and sort of thing. But then we moved about a year and a half later to the other, another part of Indiana, my home state, where I didn't have a teacher anymore, But I, and I just kept playing. Uh, my father would send away for sheet music from some place up in Chicago. And anytime he heard a song on the radio that sounded nice, he would order the music and then I would learn it. And, uh, and then I started gigging around age nine, playing churches and lions clubs, meetings and company parties and so on. And, uh, and eventually discovered jazz when I was maybe 13, I'm going to say, I heard a Benny Goodman record, and I have no idea how it came into my possession, but I had just bought a little record player with some of my gig money and uh, needed to have some records to play on it. And I so bought a bunch, and here was this record by this you know jazz band, and it was so exciting. I was just you know, couldn't stop listening to it and immediately started looking for jazz records. And by the time I was almost through high school, I had convinced myself that this is what I wanted to do for a career. And I got that first break, you know, not, I always put down the notion that you get a big break in your career. Mostly it's little breaks one after another that kind of work your way up to a successful career. But if I had a big break, it was when I was 17, just near the end of high school, and I got noticed by a guitar player in Nashville who was a big star in the country scene, but he had gotten interested in jazz. His name was Hank Garland, and uh, he convinced his record company to let him make a jazz record instead of another country record. And uh, he liked vibraphone, but there was no vibraphone players in Nashville being a country music town. But he'd heard about, somebody told him that there's this kid up in Southern Indiana that you might want to hear. So I went down to Nashville with another musician who was heading down for a record session. And I met Hank inside the studio before this, their session started. And we played a couple of songs together and he said, what, what are your plans? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to finish high school next month and go to college in Boston in the fall. And so he proposed that I move to Nashville for the summer that we would play weekends at a little local club and we would make this record. 
sounded fantastic to me. So two, three weeks later, I loaded up my Volkswagen and drove down to Nashville. He helped me find a place to live for the summer. That summer, not only did I make Hank's record, uh, which it still gets a lot of uh, uh, support to this day, but I, I was a guest performer on a number of record sessions just as a sideman. In fact, my first gold record that I was ever on was when I was 17. It was a, a record by Floyd Kramer, a country piano player, and it was, it was called Last Date. It was his, uh, a big seller. And, and at the end of the summer, Chet Atkins, who had become something of a fan of our little jazz trio that played at the club, used to come in often to see us. Came, called me over and said, uh, I convinced the people at RCA in New York to offer you a contract. So uh, I left for college with a record contract already in my pocket. And um, things just took off from there. So in terms of being confident, because so much good stuff happened to me early on, I guess I just felt like uh, I was getting a lot of approval and um, seemed to be doing things right. So uh, it didn't take me a long time of scuffling to finally get noticed or anything. It was the opposite. I was almost not ready for it. It was happening so suddenly. I'm curious to know what you thought about Nashville when you got there. Well, you know, I grew up surrounded by country music in southern Indiana in this tiny little farm town that I lived in. And I was the only person that cared about jazz at all and or knew about it even. But I played this instrument that, you know, didn't belong in country music. But when I got to Nashville at Hank's invitation, first thing I discovered is that the local insider music uh, musicians, you know, clique that did all the studio recording were some of the nicest guys, very talented musicians. They most of all of them had a great appreciation for jazz. And there's a lot of similarity between country and jazz that you don't notice at first. They're both, you know, rely a lot on instrumental skills. Bluegrass is a good example. You've got a hot banjo player and a fiddle player and so on. They're improvising and often have quite a bit of technical facility as they do it. And there's a strong rhythmic groove with country music as well. So that's very similar to jazz. You could, you could say that jazz was a more complicated approach to it and country is a little more straight ahead. Now that does bring me to my one experiment, which was one of my two worst selling records in my whole career. I made 65 records over my life and Tennessee Firebird, uh, which I thought was a brilliant idea, just wasn't, you know, the public wasn't ready for this. I went to Nashville with a, a few jazz musicians from New York, Roy Haynes, my favorite drummer, Steve Swallow, my regular bass player, and we, uh, and and Chet had me helped me hire all the best country players, the best mandolin and banjo and guitars and and uh, fiddlers and and so on. And I put together a, a record of country songs that I rearranged to make the harmonies more jazz-like. And in fact, I spent a whole week hanging around Chet's office with him showing me songs that then I would write down, you know, as he played them. He said, oh, here's one you might like, a Patsy Cline song. And he'd play it for me and I'd write it down. So I went home with all these songs, rearranged them and came back and recorded them with these guys. And I was real proud of it, but it didn't go anywhere. Oddly enough, 25 years later, uh, it sort of had a resurgence. By then, the idea of mashing different kinds of music together had become more established and it finally found its niche in a way but um it still you know makes me laugh a little bit when someone comes up and starts raving about it and say well where were you in 1966 you know when i needed you <laughs> <laughs> i have to say that tennessee firebird album is fantastic it's it's still wonderful to listen to well i you know to me it is one of my favorite guitar players is Bill Frizzell, uh, who had been one of my students years ago when, when he was a Berkeley student. And uh, he started doing some what is now kind of called Americana kinds of projects, you know, using folk music and old American songs in his jazz setting. 
And he called me up one day and said, you know, I started doing this, and then I came across your Tennessee Firebird record, and I realized you had been doing this 25 years ago. So, you know, I couldn't believe it. So that that gave me a chuckle. But at least people are are finally appreciating it. I'm curious to know, because some of the composers or songwriters that you interpreted on that album, and it's something you've done a lot in your in your discography, is not just interpreting jazz composers. You know, Bob uh-huh. Dylan is commonly thought of as being a great lyricist, but his melodies, yeah. you know, are incredible. Yeah. I was a huge Dylan fan, in fact, and really wanted to include at least something by him on the record. And in fact, I hired the same bass and drummer, bass player and drummer from the record he made in Nashville called Blonde on Blonde, which had come out around that same time. So when I was planning the sessions, I asked Chet to put me in touch with those two guys because I just wanted to feel the connection a little bit. But throughout my career, I discovered, you know, really great material all over the place, whether it's tango music or classical pieces, uh, in the case of some country music and, and pop music stuff. I noticed in the introduction, you mentioned Tim Harden. Now there's a name you don't hear much anymore. And, uh, he was a, quite a character. I used to play at a small club in New York that mostly had rock bands, but the owner liked my band. So we played there, you know, every couple of months, we'd, we'd get a week booking there if we were in town. And Tim was in there almost every night. And he was always talking to me about going to make a record one of these days. I'm going to make a record. I want you to be on it. And I, yeah, I, said, I kept saying, okay, sure, sure, fine. You know, it d- didn't look like he was that together and uh, kind of out of it much of the time. And then and eventually I got a phone call from somebody saying, well, I'm producing this record for singer Tim Harden, and he insists that you have to be on it. So I did a couple of tracks on the record, and it actually became pretty successful. Uh, unfortunately for Tim, his career you know, was worked nicely for a year or two, and then he fell into drug use and managed to die. So it was a sad ending in the end, but I was kind of happy and proud that I got to make that record with him. A while ago, you were mentioning the song Last Date that Floyd Kramer mm-hmm, yeah. composed. I have to say, it's probably my favorite, along with Sleepwalk, my favorite instrumental song. And I'm curious, when you were in the recording studio, was there a feeling that you got that this was something magical? Well, you know, up to that point, Floyd had not yet had a a strong record of his own. In fact, Chet Atkins found him... I think in Mississippi, he was playing a concert with some all-star country musicians and somehow heard Floyd and invited him to come, said, you should come to Nashville. We'll have work for you. And so that summer, 1960, RCA actually offered Floyd his first record project. And it was just going to be a single to start with. So he came in with two songs. I'm on both of them. And we had gotten to know each other during the months of that summer. And I know he admired my playing and he was, I think looking for something a little different sound for his record. So he would, wouldn't be lost in the shuffle of typical country records. And he had his distinctive personal style with his, the way he did things, right melodies with his right hand high on the keyboard of the piano. But he, he invited me to the session and said, uh, just I want you to just add the sound of the vibraphone, play some play chords behind me while I'm playing my piano part. I said, great, fine, happy to do that. So he taught me the song and then we recorded it. You know, it took, I don't know, I'm going to say an hour, hour and a half to go from learning the song to then doing you know, four, three or four takes to get a good version. And then we did the other song on the, for the, for the B side of this single. And I don't remember it, to be honest, at this point in time, it didn't uh, become a hit, but last date did. And like I said, it's, it actually became a gold record. I've, I've been on in the back. I've never had a gold record of my own, <laughs> but I have had some that have sold well and gotten, you know, into the 
top of the charts in the jazz charts uh, now and then. But uh, the next gold record I was on was with Katie Lang. That was in ooh, 19, what is 25 years? She just had her 25th anniversary tour of her of that record project. And I went to see the concert. It was great to see her again and, and hear her really wonderful singing. But, uh, but it was kind of a thrill to be on a hit record when I was 17 and just getting started. And uh, always, you know, thought really well of, of Floyd and his, and his music. Going back to the, the Gary Burton albums, in preparing for this interview, I went through and I listened to all of them. And I wow. <laughs> I had a fun time. Okay. <laughs> this might be a difficult question. If you had to pick one album from the Gary Burton discography to represent mm-hmm. what you do, you had to pick one, which one would it be? Crystal Silence. Why is that? It's not. That that's the my first duet record with Chick Corea. It's not typical of my bands. I had bands for thirty, I don't know, forty years or whatever since from the age of twenty five on. What is that? Oh, almost fifty fifty years of having my own bands, and I certainly made a lot of my own band records. But if there if if someone said you get to pick one record that will live on and the others will fade away which one that record just is so close to, you know, a perfect project that was chick and I first meeting each other and trying to record together. We had allowed three days to record. Normally in jazz music, you do records pretty quick. And we had, because we didn't have a repertoire already rehearsed, we knew we would have to learn each song before we could start recording it. We each brought in a collection of lead sheets from, you know, either favorite songs or songs we, either of us had written and so on to work from. And we started in on the first day up in Norway at this recording studio. And um, you know, we put, rehearsed the first song and we played it. And we thought, wow, that actually was a pretty good take. I, you know, maybe... We, Maybe that one's okay. Let's move on to the next one. Pretty soon, we had recorded all the songs. Only one of them did we do twice. And we were done in about four hours. And uh, we sat there and listened to the playbacks for another couple of hours, just kind of making sure we were done, and then said that, I guess we're done. So we changed our plane tickets and flew home the next day. And Hearing that record even decades later, I mean, that was 1972, hearing it decades later, it still sounds like just about as perfect as I could expect a record to be. And I was so pleased that it became a big success. Uh, You know, when it first came out, ECM, this tiny little record company that made it, this German company, didn't even have direct sales in the United States. You had to order it and have it mailed to you. And only a handful of stores actually brought in shipments of it to sell. So I was surprised when uh, my manager, who also was at that point booking Chick as well, uh, called up and said, we have a, you know, an offer for you guys to do a duet concert at the University of Michigan. I said, really? How do they even know about it? So I figured, well, some fan came across the record and has talked the entertainment committee into offering us a, a concert date. So we said, okay, the money was pretty decent. We, you know, we both agreed we would do it. Pat Matheny was in my band at the time. And he said, oh, gosh, you guys are some of my favorite musicians. I love that record. I'm going to go with you to Michigan because this is probably the only chance I'll get to hear you guys play together. I'll go help carry the vibes. I want to be there. So he flew out with me (laughs) and we walked into this concert hall expecting I was thought it would be a nice, small, intimate place. After all, we're just a duet. It's huge. Four thousand seats. And, and I'm saying, oh, my God, you know, we're going to be playing for 200 people scattered down in the front. Uh, it's going to be like playing in an empty bowling alley. And finally, it was concert time. I looked behind from behind the curtain and it was completely full, which scared me again, because I said, now, how are we going to hold that many people's attention with just two of us out on this big stage? 
But we did. It was a huge success. And the concert offers started rolling in. And we've played together for 45 years. Uh, it still amazes me. Probably, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 concerts, something like that. We toured every year during this past these past decades and uh, made, what, seven records together. And we've won six Grammy Awards between us in, in our duet format. It's uh, turned out to be one of the most amazing, you know, side journeys of my career to discover, you know, what a great thing we had together. What would you say Chick Corea's greatest talent is? Well, he has two. <laughs> it would be hard to say the greatest. He's an incredible composer. And I'll say the same thing about Pat Metheny. Most jazz musicians who write their own music tend to write the same two or three songs over and over again with slight variations. So it tends to become repetitive. And, um, and, I, and I'm sorry that that happens, but there's a pretty strong incentive to, on musicians to write your own material. First of all, the big stars do it, and you feel like to really reach that level, I have to do it too. And you, you certainly make more royalties if you write the tunes than if you just record other people's tunes. But uh, there's a, only a handful of jazz musicians who can crank out year after year after year new, different, challenging, uh, inventive, uh, exploring music that uh, just never seems to run out of creative uh, juices. And Chick is certainly one of the champions at that. I've loved every project we've done together because most of it has been uh, featuring his music along with the occasional standard or something, but mostly it's been his compositions and it covers such a range of styles and types of things that uh, it was always fascinating. And he's one of the best. Uh, it's hard to say anyone is the best jazz pianist uh, in the business. Uh, there, there are so many really good ones, but let's say in, whether it be the top three or top five or whatever, Chick is there. Um, I've gotten to play with, probably uh, at least three of the big guys. That would be Herbie Hancock and Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea, but primarily with playing with Chick. And, um, you know, never ceases to amaze me how what wonderful command he has of the piano. First of all, his technique is just flawless and, and mind-blowing, but uh, so much fun to play with. You know, he's, you know, uh, just right there, pushing me, prodding me with uh, ideas, tossing things at me as I'm playing, as I'm soloing and improvising, that just keeps me inspired. So major pianist, major composer, that's Chick. You mentioned a couple of times Pat Metheny, and he told me that playing with you was like being invited to join the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, the Beatles, I want to say I was a huge Beatles fan. They came along when I was in my early 20s, and I had sort of missed being a teenager. You know, I started working nightclubs when I was 15, 16 years old and would get home from my gig at one in the morning and get up and go to high school. And at the end of the day, you know, get in my car and go back to, the, you know, the, uh, the nearest city that had nightclubs it was an hour away and Evansville, Indiana. And I would drive down every night and play at, at, at a couple of different restaurants that had live music. And, uh, so I kind of missed being a teenager and having those experiences. And when I came across the Beatles in my, like I say, in my early twenties, it hit me like a ton of bricks. They were so creative and so compelling and, and all that. I just fell in love with them. I had every record they put out I actually saw them live at Shea Stadium, their last concert in the U.S., I think it was. And I I actually went because Stan Getz, whose band I was in, happened to, the promoter of that concert at Shea Stadium was Sid Bernstein, and he was the same guy who who put on Stan's concerts at Carnegie Hall and that sort of thing. So he had 
offered to the Getz family, to Stan and Monica, you know, would you guys be interested in tickets to see the Beatles? I've, I've booked them to play at Shea Stadium. And they d- didn't know who he was talking about. <laughs> but when I heard that, my ears picked up. I said, hey, guys, we're going, you know, call him back <laughs> and take the tickets. So we ended up taking, having a whole box with 15 uh, family members and friends. The whole band went, you know, uh, with you know, grandkids and, and, and all that, we filled the box and it was the most amazing concert, uh, of its day. It was before large concerts were, were a, a known thing. It may have been one of the first stadium concerts ever, uh, to be honest. But as for Pat saying it was like joining the Beatles, <laughs> he was uh, 18 or 19 when I met him. Uh, he was a student at the university of Miami and he actually took the bus all the way to Wichita. He, he's from Missouri originally, Kansas City. But he found out I was going to be playing at a jazz college jazz festival in Wichita, Kansas. And he rode the bus all the way there so he could meet me and introduced himself to me and asked if he could sit in. I said, no, because <laughs> uh, I was going to be playing with a college big band. You know, wasn't even my scene. But he was persistent, and finally I agreed to let him play one song with me and the bass and drums, just a you know one piece in the middle of this concert. And he still has the scratchy old recording of it that was done on a cassette machine. Um, but based on that meeting, I, I told him he should move to New York or Boston, someplace where there's a music scene, uh, if he really wanted to go to the next step in his career. So he came to Boston because he said he didn't know anyone in New York. And he spent a few years there and ended up, you know, after a year or so in Boston, joining my band and playing with me for four years. And then after that, started his own band. Uh, it was uh, it was marvelous to watch this guy grow and mature as a player, to go from a diamond in the rough to this uh, really original, super talented player and a real inspiration as a person as well incredibly dedicated to uh, to his art and to the music and uh, has made so many great records over the years and fortunately i still get to keep well up until i retired i still got to keep playing with him from time to time we would do a record every six or eight years or so or do a little tour and so on and kind of reconnect and i'm very flattered that he compared me to the Beatles. <laughs> well, on that note, what would you say the best compliment you've ever gotten as a musician or a person is? Well, the two compliments that I that mean the most to me when I get them, I'll, I'll, that'll be my way of answering this question. Usually people come up and say, you know, how, how they like the band or they like my soloing. Uh, or, you know, they're blown away by my facility, my technique on the vibes. How do I play with four mallets so well to do all that stuff and so on. But the person who comes up and says, you have a really good knack for choosing great material. That always pleases me. And the other compliment is when someone says, you know, improvisers come and go, play people improvise at all different levels of abilities, but you are one of the single best improvisers just melodically that's around. And when I hear that compliment, I I get all embarrassed and flattered as well. I've always strived to improve that area of my musicality. And I, when I listen to my later records and see my YouTubes as well, which I do now, I uh, am often, you know, surprised and pleased that I play as as well as as with as much continuity of thought that uh, that I managed to to do on the instrument and uh, feel pretty proud. Do you feel that it's more important to be confident or would you say it's more important to be self-critical? Well, you got to have almost an equal combination of both. If you don't have the confidence, you won't take risks and you have to take risks and, and they don't always pay off. But, you know, if you're talented enough, your instincts will keep guiding you 
to the things that are likely to work for you. So you'll win more often than you lose when you take risks, but you have to, you can't just play it safe. And um, I'm sorry, what was the two things? Uh, confidence. Oh, be self-critical. Yeah. Yes. If you're not, if you're not self-critical, you also lose your focus. If you start thinking like, oh, I can do no wrong. Uh, everything, every note I play is golden. Um, then you won't grow as a player. Uh, you, you are generally your own worst critic. You know where you slipped up, where you mis- made mistakes, even if no one else noticed them. And often it's not an obvious mistake. It's just something that you realize you could have done better uh, if you had taken an extra couple of seconds to, you know, uh, let it soak in before you acted and, uh, and so on. So, yes, I think it takes a, a, a kind of, I could say, an equal mix of being willing to be critical of what you're doing and try to do your best, but also to believe in yourself. And, um, and if you don't, it can be very negative. I mean, I'll, I'll refer once again to Stan Getz, who I played with for three years, a, a very successful jazz musician, one of, one of the big stars in the jazz history. But Stan was riddled with self-doubt. You know, he was self-taught. He barely read music and played by ear. And he was, lived in terror of at some point he was going to be exposed as a, as a, an insufficient player that he would be a, a people would come up to him and say, you're faking it. We know you're not that good and so on. And it haunted him all the time. Even as people came up raving about how great he was and how successful his records were and how much audiences loved him behind it all. He also was, you know, expecting the hammer to fall any day and and I saw that, you know, for him, it was a real burden. There was no talking him out of it. Uh, he had had this perspective about himself since he was started out as a teenager and uh, just, you know, was sure that at any day he was going to be exposed as, as a phony. And of course, it never happened. You wrote this memoir, Learning to Listen, The Jazz Journey of Gary Burton. Was there any revelation that you got from writing your autobiography when you looked at your life? Yes, it was very, uh, a very, a really good learning experience about life. And going back through my past was an interesting thing. I discovered something that I'm sure other writers will, would verify is at first you, you, you don't realize how much you can remember, but the more you start you know, recalling and focusing on even 40 years ago and 50 years ago, more and more memories start filling in. And you were, you know, a lot of people have said to me that guys that I played with back then said, how did you remember the names of those places and those things and those stories? You know, it's a, you know, when I hear them, read them in your book, that comes back to me, said, but I would never have recalled it otherwise. And I said, well, it's a curious thing. The more I wrote, the more I worked on the book, the more memories kept coming back. And it, it helped put me into, um, you know, a, a broader perspective. I had, I never thought about the past much. I never had the idea to go back and, you know, play older music again, re-record things as a lot of musicians might do. I was always looking for the next new, you know, uh, style of music to come into favor and want to be part of it and so on. But I think one of the reasons I had trouble finishing the book at first, I worked on it for about 10 years and could never seem to get past the middle years. And then I would run out of ideas and, and focus. And then finally, I took another shot at it and, and I was able to get to the end. And I realized that I couldn't finish it because I wasn't far enough along in my life to know how it was going to end. So I ran out of, you know, what to talk about when I got to sort of the middle of my career, the ending hadn't come into sight yet, but, uh, once it did, I was able to look at my career as kind of a whole arc that's spread over my, you know, six decades of playing. And, um, and it kind of all made sense to me at that point. I did discover that I have been a lifelong 
tightrope walker. That is, um, and not everybody approaches it this way, but I've always felt like I was, you know, dangerously inching along a tightrope and might fall off at any minute and crash. And uh, it was a relief to me when I retired from my education career. I breathed, breathed a sigh of relief and said, oh, I made it to the end without making any huge mistakes. And then the same thing happened when I finished my playing career. I had the same experience of feeling like, oh, now I can breathe easy. I made it to the end without, you know, making a mess of things, without messing up. And uh, whether that's the best way to approach an artistic career, I have no idea. But it's what I did. And, uh, and I didn't realize it until I was writing the book. What would you say was the best thing about being Gary Burton? What do you think is the best thing about your perspective? Well, I've, I've gotten to do a lot of different things, both in my personal life and my uh, musical life. In music, in jazz, you seem to be in one camp or another. That is, you like to f build a familiar environment and, and then stay with it you know, uh, playing the same kinds of tunes with the same familiar musicians. A good example of that would be uh, Wes Montgomery. Beautiful records, you know, a genius of the guitar, but, you know, he stayed in his his milieu his, his whole career. You didn't see him doing, you know, totally unexpected things. The opposite would be someone like Miles, for instance, who was forever trying out things from projects with Gil Evans playing sketches of Spain uh, or or going into electronic music late in his career, which could have threatened his success, to be honest. And we all held our breath to see what was going to happen when that when he went that direction. But, uh, you know, he still remained famous and successful. But, but I admired, you know, his nerve to push ahead, try things. You know, he didn't want to sit still. And I fall into that camp as well. I'm attracted to different things, things I've never encountered before. And next thing you know, I'm all enthusiastic about tango music or classical music or whatever, and, and trying it out and see if I can make a, you know, something of it. So that is certainly, you know, you know, I belong in that, in that camp. And I've done the same thing in my personal life to some extent. You know, I was a very predictable family man with my, you know, I was married twice. I had two, two kids and now two grandkids. I'm still great friends with all of them. And then about midlife came to terms with the fact that I'm gay. And so at age 41, I came out and you know, started living a whole different life, which I have have since to this day, and I've had now husbands uh, and so on. In a way, I feel like I've had two great lives, each you know, and and love both experiences. I, I was I was happy as a living as a straight guy, but I'm even happier living as a gay guy, and I feel like I've had the best of of uh, both lives, kinds of lives. And, uh, and I feel like one of the luckiest people in the world. My career has been incredible for me, and I've had one great lucky break after another, met and played with almost everybody I ever wanted to play with. My one regret was not getting to make a record with Sarah Vaughn. Hmm. We talked about that several times over the years. We, we would meet up at jazz festivals and that sort of thing. And, uh, and it was kind of in the, on the back burner that we would get around to this one of these days. And then she passed away. So um, never got the chance. And I kicked myself for not having pushed that when I had the, the opportunity. But other than that, I've, I've got to, gotten to play with all my heroes and become friends with most of them. And uh, it's like a fairy tale you know, career when I look back on it and, you know, like I say, I feel like one of the luckiest people on the planet. Oh, the listeners out there can visit GaryBurton.com. That's the official Gary Burton website. Yeah. In closing, you just never know who's listening. Totally <laughs> open-ended. I would just like to give you the stage. What would you say to all the people who are tuned in? 
Well, if you're musicians, aspiring musicians, then I have, you know, advice, which is don't, don't get discouraged. Keep on practicing and playing and trying to play any gigs, any opportunities that come along. Don't wait for that perfect gig to come along. Take anything. I learned, I played all kinds of things from commercial gigs, wedding gigs, everything when I was a student until my, my jazz career got underway. And I learned something from all those experiences about playing for audiences and about playing other kinds of music. You know, none of it was a waste of my time. I didn't enjoy it as much, of course, as I did jazz, but I, without realizing it, I was learning stuff all the time. And jazz fans, wow, you're the lifeblood of the music. Without fans, um, you know, we're, we're just playing at home for ourselves. And uh, I realized that the jazz audience has shrunk to some extent as the music has become more uh, defined as an art music. And it used to be a popular music. People danced to it. People went to, con- went to jazz events for fun. And it was the popular music of its day. In fact, back in the 1930s and 20s, 30s, into the 40s, jazz was popular music. Now it's more of an artistic music, uh, the way we treat classical music. And it you know, means you have to make more of an effort as an audience member to uh, appreciate it and value it. But people who become jazz fans tend to stay jazz fans forever. And uh, I much admire that. So I guess that's what I would have to say, Paul. Well, Mr. Burton, thank you so much for being so interesting, and thank you so much for sharing with us. It's my pleasure, and uh, all the best to you. Keep on going with your show. (laughs) Thank you. All right, sir. I appreciate it. Until next time. Okay, you're welcome. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep, bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, dock, Goodbye.